Thanks, Simon. And great job with the hosting, although there were some pretty poor questions there. How exciting to meet the team. Um, and when Bridget was talking about where she's from, um, she's from the Cardiff, I guess, Barry, from what she's talking about, the whole Gavin Stacey thing, we um, just brought a funny story to mind, which I feel like I need to share with you. So we, we did a bit of a family trip, um, and we went to Barry to do the whole Gavin and Stacey, have a look around, see where they came from, and see where it's all filmed, and see what that's all about. Um, and we spent a few days doing that, and there was this one moment, and we were, we were right where it's all filmed, on the, on the front, you need to have watched you need to have watched Gavin and Stacey to appreciate this. But, um, and we were walking on the street, and this car pulls up outside. And this guy walks out of this, like, cafe, like, you know, where you go for a really good breakfast sort of place. Guy walks out, and this guy in the car goes, oh, Dave, what's occurred in? And, this, and the other guy goes, I won't lie to you, not much to be honest. I could not believe it. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. I was just like, no way, this is really how they talk. This is like a genuine conversation. It's like, anyway, anyway, we'll move on. So we are talking about community and unity. Last week, we introduced the theme. This is a theme that we're going to spend a little while um, exploring because it feels like it's really a significant thing that um, God wants us to focus on. What does it look like for us to be church, particularly in um, the middle of this virus where we're a little bit more disparate and maybe we're a little more um, isolated maybe than we are. We don't get to all gather in the same place. What does it look like for us to be community and unity? And what, is the, what does the Bible teach us about that? So actually, it's going to be a little bit of a different style for me this morning. Um, but we're going to go skipping through some ver um, verses of Scripture, and I'm going to try and tell this big um, story. I'm going to try and do some foundational work on unity um, and what this theme of unity is um, in the Bible. So, in John, in John 17, it says this. This is Jesus um, when he's um, with his disciples. This is the Last Supper, um, and Jesus is spending some time with his disciples, and he's delivering like the. This is the. This is the essence of what everything is about. And he's praying. And he's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. And then he says this, But my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's talking about his disciples. He's going, but my prayer isn't just for them. I also want to pray for the people who will believe in me through the message that these disciples are going to take into the world. Now, guess who that is? That's us, right? We are the people who believe in Jesus, who have a relationship with God as a consequence of the message that these disciples took and started sharing in the world. We see that happen in the early church in the book of Acts, and, then, and that has flowed through. If you trace back your spiritual heritage, the person who introduced you to Christ, and you look at the person who introduced them to Christ, and the person who introduced them to Christ, and you take it all the way back, what you will find is it originates with Jesus sat on a hill with his 12 disciples saying, go and make disciples of all nations. That's where it starts. That's where it flows to. We are the people that Jesus is praying for here. So be encouraged at this pivotal moment of the Last Supper, the night before he was crucified. 
He prayed for us. So what did he pray? This is a pretty important prayer, right? This is, uh, I mean, it's so important that they wrote it down. This is what he says. He says, all of them may be one. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus decides that he wants to pray for us, the church, the people who believed in this message that the apostles take out. He says, I want to pray for them. And, and he could pray for anything, right? And what's the one thing? He doesn't have this long list of things he wants to pray for. He has one thing that he wants to pray for. This is, just, in many ways, a very simple prayer. It's not a long list. But he's not praying for protection. He's not praying for power or authority. He's not praying that our message will carry great significance and people will listen to us. He's not praying for gifts of healing or prophecy. He's not... There's all sorts of things that we might think he could pray for. That we would have favor in our communities. That um, the world would be changed by our message. He doesn't pray any of that stuff. He prays for one thing. May they be united. May they be as one in the same way that God the Father and God the Son are one and God the Spirit are one. May that same unity be evident in how his church is united and is one. So unity is a pretty big deal because it's the one thing Jesus prays for. And it seems to, he seems to be saying that the reason why unity is so important is so that the world may believe that, you've, that God has sent Jesus. And that if we are brought into complete unity, then the world will know that God sent Jesus and loves them even as God has loved Jesus. It seems to me that the, the entire message of Jesus being the revelation of what God is like, the entire message that God loves the world is bound up in how united we are. So how are we doing with our thousands of denominations? How are we doing with our church splits and our arguments and our, I think we could do better, right? It seems to me that unity is quite a big deal. It seems to me that what we see here is that unity is God's nature. He says that in the same way that I am in you and you are in me, unity is God's nature. Unity is God's prayer for us. The thing God wants for us over everything else is that we are united. At this pivotal moment in history, 
His prayer is that we are united. And it is God's plan because through this unity, that's how people will know. That's how people will understand who Jesus is. That's how people will understand what God is like. That's how people will experience God's love for them. So it seems pretty important. Right at the beginning, in Genesis, because everything starts in Genesis, Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. The verb, the noun here is plural. Let us make man in our image. God refers to himself in the plural and the singular. Right at the beginning, the Hebrew language does this beautiful thing where God is singular and God is plural. God is united and God is three in one. God is relational. God is this revelation of unity. It's a really important message right at the beginning. And he says, in our unity, let's make man in our image. I.e., therefore, let's make man in a way that his relationship, his community, their unity is a revelation of our unity as God. Because when we are in unity, you see, we're created to be in unity. We're created to be community. This doesn't work just as a bunch of individuals, which is bad news for our individualism-obsessed society. But life doesn't work as individuals. We see God in Genesis chapter 12, and he calls Abraham, and he says, I want you to leave your nation. And then he says to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God calls Abraham, and we were singing before that we're all children of Abraham, and God calls Abraham out from this power base, from his homeland, where he is part of a tribe, he is part of a nation, he is part of a power base. That's where you find your identity. And what happened back in, these, in this time, and it won't be unfamiliar now even, is people thought tribally, people thought that gods were tribal. People thought that gods were national or personal or, or the god of your town or, or even gods were kind of colloquial or gods were attached to particular things. So it was the god of childbirth or the god of the harvest or the god of finances or the god of messages or the god of whatever it might be. And the whole idea of gods was that if you, that was your god and your, this god had some sort of power, influence over something, or maybe all sorts of things. And if you kept that God happy, if you kept that God on side, if you made the right sacrifices and you obeyed the right rules and you did your prayers at the right time and you, and you did all the things that you were supposed to do to keep that God happy, then that God might bless you, which would give you an advantage in the world. So if your wife was pregnant, 
you would pray to the God of childbirth that it would be a safe childbirth. If your harvest was due, you would pray to the God of harvest that the harvest would be healthy and, and you would make the right sacrifices and you would do the right things and you would follow that rule laws because it was this transactional relationship with God's that if I do this for you, if I believe the right things and say the right things, if I do the right things, then you will bless me and I will get my advantage in the world. And then right here, Genesis 12, comes this brand new idea of what God is like. Never before has this nature of God been expressed in any writing before this point. Any other culture around the world where we have writings from a similar age or even older, is there this idea of God? Because God says, come out from that nation. Come out from that mindset. Come out from that power base. Follow me and I will bless you. Okay, well, all pretty normal at the moment, but I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Great, fabulous. But he goes, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God reveals his plan here and God says, I'm not just a God that just blesses those people who do the right things for me or follow the right rules. Or I'm not a transactional God. I, actually, I want to pull you out of that mindset. I want to release you from that mindset. Actually, I want to bless you because I'm the God who blesses. But I want to bless you so you're a blessing for everybody. I'm not doing this to give you an advantage. I'm doing this for the blessing, for the benefit, for the for the good of all people, of the whole earth. This God is radically different, and he reveals his plan that actually this God wants to bless the whole earth. This God, when we, how we live this out, how we um, express God, is to be a revelation to the whole earth of what God is like. We are the image bearers of the invisible God, where the world is supposed to be able to look at this nation of Israel and go, so that's what God is like. That's the sort of God that I want to be in relationship with. We see, after they've been in slavery for 400 years, and God brings them out of slavery, um, this is in Exodus, and in ch chapter 19 of Exodus, God says this. He says, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, the beauty of this is a priest is somebody who intercedes between God and man, who reveals something of what God is like, who represents man to God and represents God to man. And he says, but he doesn't go, I don't, I'm going to have just, a whole, I want you to be a whole bunch of priests. He says, as a nation, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. You can't do this on your own. This is what you do as a community. This is what you do together. I, want to make, I don't want to make you a bunch of holy people. I want to make you a holy nation. Collectively, community, in unity, revealing to the world what God is like. I'm going to bless you as a nation so that all peoples are blessed. All nations are blessed. The whole world is 
blessed. Through you, I will bring blessing to the whole world in the way that you exist as a community. And that's chapter 19. In chapter 20, what we see is the Ten Commandments and then the whole law. And this is a really important point for us to understand. Because the law that he gives them is how to live in community. Now, we view that in our individualistic world, in our individualistic culture that we have now, as a bunch of individualistic rules. I mustn't. I must love God, and I must not take God's name in vain, and I must remember the Sabbath, and I must not murder, and I must not lie, and I must not steal, and I must honor my parents, and I must... I have to... We see them as individualistic rules, but actually the law cannot be lived out as an individual. It will crush you. Interestingly, the Sermon on the Mount that we see when Jesus gives his kind of inaugural introduction to the kingdom that he's introducing, it's not something that can be lived out as individuals. We here at YCC say the way of Jesus cannot be lived in isolation. We can only do this in community. The law can only be lived out as community. It only makes sense that way. It's only possible that way. The, the um, Sermon on the Mount can only be lived out as community. It's the only way it makes sense. We are created for community. We are created to be a blessing. In Psalm 133, we see this. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's this overflow, it's this blessing that flows and flows and flows. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Who knows? Anyway, for there, for there, the Lord proclaims his blessing, even eternal life. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity because that is where the Lord proclaims his blessing even life eternal when we live in unity that is where the blessing flows that is where we reflect and the reason the blessing flows there the reason we discover life to its fullest there is because that is where we reflect God the most when we live in unity. So, there's all these laws that are given in the Old Testament for how to live as a community. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus, you know, we see this a lot in the Gospels. Jesus is asked a lot of questions by a lot of people because what they're trying to do is figure out, well, which of these laws that you've given us do we, is more important? If, if, there's, if, if there's this law which says you need to save a donkey and there's this law saying you can't do any work on the Sabbath, which one overrules the other? Because what if there's a donkey that needs saving on the Sabbath and we don't know which law to follow? So which is the most important law? Can you give us some sort of hierarchy because we just keep getting confused by this? And Jesus says... Ah, this is an easy question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And it is, Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. It is still recited every day by Torah 
following Jews. It, this, is, this is the Jewish equivalent of the Lord's Prayer. This is like the most famous. Maybe John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is like the most famous verse that they would recite every day. So when Jesus is going, well, I, I'll tell you what, the, you know, this is the great commandment. This is, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Of course, that's, of course that's the greatest commandment. We know that. That's the one that we quote all the time. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. No, a single question will have gone around that crowd. Everyone's going, yeah, 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 no, the shamer. Of course, the shamer. Of course, the shamer. Why don't you even know? Why are you asking the question? Of course, it's the shamer. But then Jesus throws a real curveball. And he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a kind of a, it's tucked away in numbers. Like this isn't anything significant. This is just kind of, Jesus has just tacked this on. This is like a whole curveball that they would not have seen come in. Love God, absolutely. Love your neighbor? I mean, yeah, okay, it's in there. It's kind of important, but. Jesus has just elevated this like third division, fourth division, non-division command to Premier League, Champions League qualification. Like Jesus has just gone, this is it now. This is the new greatest command. And everyone's going, whoa, 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 where did that come from? You've done what? Love God, love others. I was going, okay, all right. And now today, I mean, you'll hear this quoted around all the time, but that was a game changer then. But look what happens. In Romans. So what we've had now is all like the disciples and the apostles. The, the early church now is, is spreading across the world. And what we have in the Bible is all these letters from these apostles, from these key people, from Paul, from James, from John, from Peter, like all these, all these key people in the story have written letters leading. These are the leaders of the early church. And Paul has written to the Romans and he says this, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Paul, I think, you, um, I think you forgot one. Right? Because Jesus said, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he did say that all the whole command wraps on this. Like, if you follow these two, you've nailed the whole law. Like, but you've just, I think, Paul, this is a bit awkward because you're Paul and we don't want to impress you very much. But, like, you've, uh, you've dropped the ball there, Paul, because you've missed the love God. Like, you've just gone straight for love your neighbor. Like, what's he thinking but we don't just this isn't just a one-off thing we also see this in Galatians 5 you my brothers and sisters were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself huh Paul's gone rogue what's he doing we had two commands. Jesus made this really simple for us. All these hundreds of laws you've got, just two. And then the disciples have, and the apostles have gone out and gone, 
two is a bit complicated. We're going to narrow this down to one. But they've gone with the wrong one. They've not gone with the shamer, the, you know, the famous command. They've gone with the curveball. And they've gone, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. What is Paul doing? But maybe it's not just Paul. But later on, Paul says, the only thing, or earlier on in that chapter, says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. If you remember, he also says in Corinthians that we can do all these amazing things. We can prophesy and we can, we can do incredible, we can teach great sermons and we can, we can do incredible things. But if we haven't got love, it's empty and it's pointless and it's meaningless. So love is pretty important. Loving your neighbor seems to be the one command now. They have taken the two and they've turned it down to one. But it's not just Paul. John says this in 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. It's not pulling any punches. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, dropped off the bottom, who they have not seen. Sorry. So, we have this situation where he's going, look, if you don't love your neighbor, if you don't love your brother, if you don't love your sister, you're a liar if you say that you're a follower of Jesus. You're a liar if you say that you love God. John also says this, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Now, the evidence that we are saved is solely that we love each other. Not that we have pictures of our baptism or we've said some prayer or we're helping out in whatever project we're helping out in or we're read our Bible every day, or we come to church every week, or none of that, none of that assures us that we've passed from death to life. The only thing that assures us that we've passed from death to life is that we love each other. The message that we heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. John, also gone rogue. James, surely James is going to teach us some sense. He's going to remember both of you. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Not you as well, James. Seriously, this, what happened to love God? But what they've done is they've boiled it down to one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your brother and sister. Love each other. Even Peter, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The early church understood that the one command that summed up the whole law, love your neighbor as yourself. Unity, love is the entirety of the law. Unity is how we model this. But where does this come from? Well, interestingly, it comes from Jesus himself. Because in John chapter 13, he says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know 
that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus, the same Jesus who said there are two laws, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is, hangs on these two scriptures. Himself has said now there is a new law. Love one another as I have loved you. The entirety of the evidence that we are God's people, the entirety of how we reveal what God is like, the entirety of our gospel is contained in how we love each other, is, con is contained in our unity and our love for one another. And we see it happening in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. Total unity. Also in Acts chapter 2, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favors of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The gospel that we preach is contained in how we love one another. The law that we follow is fulfilled in how we love one another. God's nature is unity. God's prayer for us is that we are united. God's plan for how the world is saved is that we are united and that we love one another. This is no small command. This is no throwaway idea. This is no command that we can kind of, well, yeah, I mean, I'll love the ones that I'd like and that are easy to love and there's some that are a little bit difficult. Oh, yeah, fine, I'll be part of the church that I really love being part of, but, oh, actually, that church, that's just too difficult. Or, oh, I'll... Yeah, yeah, I'll, get, I'll hang out and I'll love and I'll bless those people because they're my, they're my people. But, oh, I wish that guy wasn't there or I wish that person wasn't there or that person's really difficult. We don't get to do that. In a polarized world, it's more important than ever that we model a world-transforming love for one another. I saw this tweet the other day as I was preparing this talk, and I thought it was a good place to finish. The devil isn't afraid of a big church. He's afraid of a united church. Let's be united. Let's be people who love each other profoundly, who go the extra mile and the extra mile and the extra mile, people of grace, people who forgive, people who encourage one another and spur each other on people who stand alongside each other and carry each other's burdens people who demonstrate our love for God with every aspect of ourselves through how we love one another people who understand that we are liars if we say that we love God if we're incapable of loving one another, of persevering with one another. 
of putting each other first. If we believe that God is going to do something significant in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world, it seems to me that God can only do something significant to the extent that we are united, to the extent that we love one another. So I'd love us to spend some time as we worship, but also this week, maybe in your families, in your small groups, thinking about how can we be more united? How can we love each other more? What does our commitment to each other look like? And we're going to spend some time over the coming weeks looking into this a little bit more. I'd love us to start having these conversations around our tables and around our small groups on Zoom or whatever it is, whatever format in our gardens or whatever it is, however we're doing this. May we be people who understand that God's greatest command is that we love one another. Amen.